Is it over? Okay. I never know what to do. Am I supposed to turn around and watch it with you? It's not on the back wall, so. All right. Uh, good morning. My name is John Marriott. I'm continuing on in our, our series that we're doing, uh, which is the church that Jesus died for. And our discussion today is going to be on what is our mission to our community. So would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here today. And we ask that Jesus would be lifted up and that he would draw all of us to him, that you would be pleased with how we engage with your word, and that uh, we would leave here uh, impacted by it, however your spirit chooses to do so. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you heard Chet this morning say that uh, he had the privilege of sitting beside a philosopher on his flight from Wisconsin. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard the joke about philosophers. It's a joke about philosophers. It's a joke that's sort of made by philosophers, so it's not funny. Um, <laughs> and I can say that because I've been teaching philosophy at Biola for a long time, and so you can always make jokes about your own kind. Uh, and it goes like this. Have you heard about the fight, the first fight, that the two philosophers had after they got married? The answer is, of course you haven't, because they haven't had the full fight yet, because they're still in the process of defining their terms. <laughs> Susan, I didn't even finish the joke, and you were laughing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, right, because in philosophy, uh, what's, what, what, what people spend a lot of time doing is asking, what do you mean by that, and what do you mean by that, right? If someone says to you, you never do this, you should say, well, what do you mean by never? In the conversation that Chet had, if the woman would have said, I can't believe that you believe in God, the first thing he should have said wasn't, well, let me explain to you why, but it should be something like this. Well, what do you mean by God? Because maybe we're not talking about the same concept that we have, right? And so then you don't communicate, but you end up talking past one another. And this morning, um, in our discussion, what is you know, the mission of the church to our community? There are three words that we need to ask, what do you mean by and the first is mission, the second is church, and then the third is community. C.S. Lewis uh, years ago um, made a, a comment and he said that all ancient philosophers who concer were concerned about ethics uh, wanted to know the answer to three questions. And he likened those three questions to ships, maybe military ships. He said, the first question that military ships need to answer when they're sailing out on the ocean is um, how they're going to sail so that they don't bump into each other. What's the formation going to be? And he said that that's the question of social ethics. How do we engage with each other, people who have different ideas and have different perspectives in society in such a way that we're not bumping into each other all the time? What are appropriate social ethics? The next question he said that ships need to answer is how they, need to, how they can stay ship shape uh, so they don't sink. And he said that that relates to the question of personal ethics. What kind of people are we? How are we living our lives? How, what kind of virtues are we adding? What kind of vices are we shedding? But then he said that the most important question of all that ships need to ask when they're sailing on the ocean is what is the mission? Why are we out here in the first place? Because if you know how not to crash into each other, that's important. And if you know how to stay afloat, that's also important. But if you don't know why you're out there to begin with, you're missing the heart of what 
a ship is, is, is the, the ships are, are, are intended to, to be doing, right? And, and that's the question of what is the meaning of life or what is the meaning of whatever the task is that we've been called to do. So when we hear the word, you know, what is the mission of the church, that's what we're asking. We're asking, what are we all here for? It's the question that Rick Warren really put his finger on years ago when he wrote The Purpose Driven Life that sold millions of copies. Do you know what the, the subheading was that, or you know what the, the subtitle was? The Purpose Driven Life, what am I on earth for? Yeah, or what on earth am I here for? Right? And that's a question that we all want to know. We all, we all have this deep desire to know, like, why are we here? What's the purpose? Right? And that's the first question that needs to be asked when we're talking about what is the mission of the church to our community is, what is the mission of the church? And this is a trendy topic because if you're in business or if you run a school uh, or if you're in any kind of an organization, you almost always have what kind of a statement? You have a mission statement, right? And your mission statement tells you why you exist. And all mission statements, at least when it comes to companies, are completely misleading because they only tell you half of the truth. And we'll see that in just a second. But I looked up some mission statements and I wondered if you'd be able to guess what they were. Let me read you this one. It's from a, it's from a, a well-known website. The mission of this company is to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. LinkedIn, right? This is a website where you put your resume up and all of your, your qualifications where you work and hopefully maybe uh, you meet people in your field or if you're looking for a job, someone will find you and hire you. Here's the second one. This is also a website. To build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. Who said, someone say PayPal? Yeah, it's PayPal, right? So you wanna buy something online, you wanna make sure it's a secure transition. A transaction, you do it through PayPal. Uh, here's one, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. That's right, that's Google. Here's the last one, it's not a website. To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Starbucks, right. All mission statements, all partially true. Because if it was totally transparent, they would all begin like this. To make money by connecting the world's professionals. To make money by building the web's most convenient. To make money by organizing the world's information. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, right? That's why businesses exist, is to make money. Uh, but it's not exactly a completely transparent mission statement. Well, if I was to ask you what the church's mission statement was, uh, the first thing that you should ask me is, is the first thing you should do is not, is not uh, try and tell me what you think the mission statement is, but you should ask me, what do you mean by church, right? What do you mean by church? Because the Bible uses the word church in more than one way. Uh, it uses it in a really broad way, a universal way that talks about everybody from the time of Pentecost after Jesus' ascension all the way up until the present day of people who have come to Jesus, recognized who he is, placed their faith in him, have been born again, have been redeemed, have been 
um, have been baptized or have been placed into God's family who are a member of the kingdom, someone who is a disciple of Jesus. That's the church universal. The word church is uh, ecclesia, which means called out. So they're the called out ones, called out from society, called out from the world that they once lived in, that Paul talks about was a kingdom of darkness where they had no hope and they were alienated from God, and they've been translated or they've been placed into the kingdom of his dear son. So the church, broadly speaking, is everybody who identifies as a follower of Jesus has been born again, and that would be people all around the world who we would consider to be our brothers and our sisters. But then it also uses the word church in a more localized context. And so when we talk about the church this morning, we're not talking about it in its broad sense, we're talking about it in its more restricted sense, its local sense. And specifically we're talking about it, or I'm making reference to it, in its corporate sense. The local church is a gathering of believers that is responsible for a a number of things. And in some ways, it's a fairly narrow number of things. You as an individual Christian and me as an individual Christian, we have a broader scope of things that I think we're responsible for than maybe the church as a corporate entity. So one of the things that the church is responsible for um, is for administering communion and for administering baptism. Uh, The church is to have uh, a leadership, uh, a group of elders and deacons. Uh, The church is responsible for administering and exercising discipline at times. It's also responsible for sending out and commissioning people to go and do the work full-time of ministry. But maybe more than anything, The church's primary responsibility, it seems, according to the New Testament, is to make disciples, to preach the word, to teach, to see people come to faith, and then grow in their maturity. So when we think about the church, what I want you to hear this morning is, what is the responsibility of Redemption Hill towards our community? And the primary responsibility that we have, and I'm going to try and make a bit of a case for, is that the church's responsibility is to make disciples. Are there other things that the church will do? Are there other good practices? Are there other good endeavors that it is involved in? Yes, there are many good things, but it's guiding light, it's north star, it's primary purpose, it's essential core identity is to make disciples. So the church has a solid center, but it also has sort of some soft edges, right? Like you might maybe think of it as a, uh, this is probably a bad example, but like of a peach, right? A peach has a solid center. It has a hard stone, but it has some soft edges. The church locally has a solid center, but it has some soft edges as it carries out that solid center. Now, trying to define mission is a little challenging because you can't go anywhere in the New Testament where it's used as a noun and it says this is the mission of the church. If there was one passage in the New Testament that you could go to where it just outlined this is the point of the church, that would be easy to do and you could just take the one passage and you could go through it looking at the important words and how they fit together and sort of tying it into other passages. But that's not really the case. So we're not going to do biblical theology this morning where you are looking at maybe the usage of a word by Matthew or the usage of the word by Luke. We're going to do systematic theology 
Right? Systematic theology is when you take a look at everything the New Testament says about the church and you try and distill down what are the really important essentials of it. This is what Uche Anazor does professionally for a living. He does systematic theology, right? He'll look at what does the Bible say about salvation? It's a lot of stuff in there. So we'll systematize it, look at it, and find out what those essentials are. But it's really hard to do systematic theology in about a half an hour because there's lots of references to the church and what it's called to do in the New Testament. And so one thing that systematic theologians often do is that they will find what is sometimes called like the primary passage. The one passage that if you really had to sort of boil it down that maybe might be the most important of all and then it is the one that you interpret the, the sort of the rest of the data on is maybe this one is what we're going to have to do today. And that is the passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, often known as the Great Commission. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open them up and we'll take a look and spend some time there. The Gospel of Matthew, written by who we believe is Matthew, Jesus' disciple. He's written it to mostly a Jewish audience. His intention seems to be to help them recognize that Jesus is the promised king, that he's the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Matthew tells us a lot about Jesus's life. He organizes his teaching or his book into sections of parables, sections of miracles, sections of teaching. He spends a lot of time on the last week of Jesus's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And in chapter 28, we have Jesus's final marching orders to the disciples, and we will see how this gets carried out throughout the rest of the New Testament as the central core of what the mission of the church is. Verse 16, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are four verbs in this passage. There are four significant verbs, but one that's a bit more significant than the other three. The most significant verb that uh, sort of helps us unpack the rest of what's going on here is when Jesus says, go and make disciples. Jesus is concerned and tells that his, his followers, his own disciples, that their job is to tell the good news, to share with other people the fact that Jesus has come, that the king has entered the world, that he's sort of set up shop, that he has inaugurated a kingdom that they're welcome to participate in. But unfortunately, everyone is excluded from the community. Even though Jesus has come to establish a kingdom that's going to bring ultimately the shalom or the peace of God, there will be reconciliation, tears will be wiped away, there will be harmony between people, there will be everything that we've ever desired in a sense that we will have a relationship with God and with others, there will be no more alienation from one another, no more fighting. It's a a beautiful sort of sometimes called a, like the beatic vision, the vision of God. What would life be like in relationship with God and other people? And Jesus says that he's come and he's established this kingdom as the king. But the problem is 
that all of us are excluded from entering into it. Even though Jesus says, you know, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reason why he says that is, is because, because our sin has separated us from being in the kingdom. We're called to tell people that the king has come. We're called to tell people that goodness and truth and beauty and flourishing is there for them to have to some degree in this life, but ultimately in the future. But we're also called to tell them that they can't enter into it because they're considered cosmic traitors. I have a friend. I met him when he was, I think, 15 years old. He was at a Bible camp in Texas. He was a camper. Three quarters of his body was burned to 90, uh, third degree burns, 90% of his body. And so he couldn't go out and play games because it was too hot on his skin. He had to stay inside when all the other campers were playing games. Nancy and I became friends with him and we spent time with him, talking with him, hearing about his tragic story. Two years later, I went back to the camp and I said to the director, where's Matt? And he said, well, um, Matt won't be coming to camp anymore. And I said, well, why, is I, like, why wouldn't he come? He loved it here and he was so involved when he could be and he just had such a great heart. And he said, yeah, well, M Matt is doing 30 years in the Texas State Penitentiary as a 17-year-old for a crime that he committed after he left the Bible camp. And so I ended up reconnecting with him and he was in jail for a serious crime. And for about 10 years, we talked on the phone every, every week and I would write him letters and he would send me letters. It would have done no good for me to stand outside of the window of his cell, him peering out, looking at the, you know, everything outside of the prison and me yelling at him hey, look at this wonderful community. Look at the great society that we have out here. So many things that you could participate in. So many wonderful things that you can enjoy out here. All you need to do is just come on out here and enter into the great blessings that you could have by being a member of this community. It would have done no good because what he had done had excluded him from living in society. It excluded him from taking advantage of fast food and wireless phones and movies and cars and, all of, and having relationships with other people. Because what he did was so terrible, it excluded him from being part of society, and rightly so. And that's the situation with all of us. What we've done have ex has excluded us from entering into and being part of the kingdom. And so God sends his son into the world not just to announce that there is this kingdom, not that to announce, just to announce that there's this wonderful community, but also to make a way so that we can enter into the community. And he does so by dying on the cross and taking our punishment and taking our penalty so that we can take his righteousness and so that we can have a right standing with God because he's done something that we could never do for ourselves. And that's the message and that's the mission that the church has been given. It's to go into the world and it's to make disciples. And we do this first by going. I remember growing up, I used to listen to Keith Green a lot. And um, how many of you remember Keith Green? 
How many of you remember feeling guilty after listening to almost every song by Keith Green? Right? He, has, he was wonderful and he was great and God used him in my life significantly and even to this day there are things that I look back on and I appreciate. But he used to have this song um, and it went like this, Jesus commands us to go, but we go the other way. It's no wonder we're moving so slow when his church refuses to obey. And Keith Green had this line where he would say, Jesus said, go, that's the command. If you don't go, then you're being disobedient unless he's giving you the command to stay. And he said, most of us are staying and not going. Because of that, I almost ended up going to New Tribes missions at like 18 years old. They turned me down. And my parents were seriously grateful for it. Because I was ready to drop out of college and go. But Jesus does say that in making disciples, that we go, and that's the mission, right? We go to people. We don't necessarily have to go to the other side of the world, but we need to go because how will they hear unless someone tells them the message? So he says that we need to go and we need to baptize, and baptize uh, presupposes that people who have heard the message, they've believed the message, they've repented of their sin, placed their faith in Jesus, and then they are baptized. So we're supposed to go and we're supposed to share the message, and then finally teach because Jesus isn't just looking for decisions. He's not just looking for conversions. He's not just looking to win a popularity contest. He's looking for people whose lives will be radically transformed because they've identified as his follower. I talked with, I talk with a lot of people. I have talked with a lot of people in the past who tell me at one point they made a decision to follow Jesus and now they think the whole thing is baloney. They don't believe in anything anymore. They say, I don't believe God exists, so consequently Jesus isn't who he claimed to be and the Bible is not true but I did make a decision at one point. And, that, and Jesus knows that making a decision is not simply enough. It has to certainly start with a decision, but he wants the church to then take those people who have made decisions and then teach them the way of Jesus, show them and model them the way of Jesus so that they will grow in their faith and the root that is there will grow deep so that when testing comes that they won't, as Jesus says in the parable, they won't fall away. The primary message, the primary mission, the solid core of any local church to their community is to make disciples. In Luke, Jesus says this a different way, but he talks and he emphasizes that you'll be witnesses. In Luke part two, the book of Acts, Jesus says the exact same thing where he says that you will start in Jerusalem and you'll then go to Judea and then Samaria and then the rest of the world and you'll be my witnesses. And that is exactly what the book of Acts tells us is that they went out and they started in Jerusalem and they spread the word and disciples grew. We deeply care about the culture that we live in. We deeply are concerned and rightly concerned about what we're seeing going on around us. But the way that we impact the world most significantly is by sharing the gospel and having people changed at the deepest core level of their being and become followers of Jesus that will never completely change the culture that we're part of. Culture almost always is directed and driven by, by institutions that create culture. The media, the education system, the arts and the entertainment world, mass media, the, the, the healthcare system. Those are all institutions that shape and form culture. Unless 
Unless people sitting at the top of those and all of those boards became Christians, we will not change culture. But what we can do is that we can influence the lives of individual people around us, reconnecting them to God because more than anything, that's what people need. People need, to, need food. People need clothing. People need a place to live. People need mental health. All of those things are important and none of those things should be excluded in what we do as believers. But the primary, most fundamental need that people have is to be reconnected with Jesus. When Jesus went preaching throughout, throughout Judea and up in the Galilee, and he sent out his disciples, every time it says this, and Jesus went and he preached, Jesus sent out the disciples and he told them to preach. As Jesus went through the towns preaching, that was his fundamental message. But you know what he did alongside of that? He sure helped a lot of people. He healed people. He cast out demons. He fed people. The primary, the primary mission of Redemption Hill to our community is making disciples. But just because that's the primary mission doesn't mean that there are not other things that we can do that help support that mission or help us carry out that mission or are shaped by that mission or sometimes they are a means to help us reach the end of that mission. Because we're called not only to be people who are making declaration and proclamation, but also people who are called to demonstrate as well. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see that he came and he taught, but we also see that he came and he served. And as the hands and the feet of Jesus, we're called to do those kinds of things too. We're called to find people who are hurt, who are broken, who are marginalized, who are, are disenfranchised on the, on the margins of society for whatever reason, and to love them and to care for them. Sometimes when I talk with people who have left the faith, they will point to the fact that they'll say, the Christian church um, is narrow-minded, judgmental, hypocritical, uh, bigoted, haters, homophobic, misogynistic, and there's a whole bunch of other adjectives that get used. And they want to know why the church is not more involved in caring for and loving other people. Now, maybe in their personal experience that has been the case, but what's really important for you to hear is the narrative that says that, 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 that's a, that is a limited perspective, and sometimes it is a media-driven perspective because when you actually look at what the church does throughout the United States, it is staggering how much they are the hands and the feet of Jesus and how much they love, how much good they do in his name as they carry out the main task of, being, of creating disciples. For example, charity and aid, food banks and soup kitchens, clothing drives, financial assistance of just giving money, benevolence offerings, health and wellness. Churches have health clinics. Uh, some larger churches or church networks operate health clinics offering free or reduced cost medical, dental, or vision care. Mental health services. Churches can off often offer counseling services or support groups. Even fitness and well-being. Churches host fitness classes, well-being workshops, and other health-related community events. Education and personal development. 
Churches often provide tutoring for students or literacy programs for adults. Life skills, uh, workshops, these might cover topics like financial literacy, job interviews, uh, job preparation, or parenting skills. Vacation Bible school, churches offer summer programs for kids that combine religious education with recreational activities. Communi community events, churches frequently host or sponsor local events, festivals like pumpkin bash, concerts, or other gatherings to foster community spirit. Youth groups, these offer social, spiritual, and services, uh, service opportunities for teenagers. Many churches have programs or events catered to senior citizens, offering both fellowship and support. Crisis intervention, shelters, disaster relief, support groups, advocacy and social justice, or social, uh, or, or you can, if you're more comfortable with not, without using the word social justice, maybe we say advocacy and justice and mercy ministries. Right? Churches often engage in support efforts to address systematic issues in their communities. Economic support, job training and placement, and on and on and on. I don't have the liberty to share with you now, and I wish that I did, about a study that I'm in the process of, that's in the process of being vetted and hopefully will come out in the next couple of years. And it's being done by one of the most elite universities in the entire nation. And what they're looking at is what would the communities look like if you were to remove all of the churches and all of the services they provide from those communities? A, a preliminary uh, sort of estimation is that faith groups, including more than just Christian groups, but, but faith groups, Christian groups being the predominant um, group out of the larger category of faith groups, contribute over a hundred billion dollars to all of the services that I've just read off to you this morning and many more. The majority of that money coming from Christian churches. So yes, sometimes people will point to the church as the reason why they've left their faith and they say it's because of all of these reasons. But you need to know that in general, the church does all kinds of good things in the name of Jesus, and rightly so, because even though our core is solid, that our job is to make disciples, to train people up, to share the gospel, we're also called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our communities. And the reason why we do good works is because Jesus did good works, and the reason why he did good works so that people would know who his father was. Jesus is the best representation that we have of God. He is the clearest expression of what God's character is like. And when Jesus comes into the world, he says that his mission in Luke chapter 4 is to bind up the brokenhearted, right? It's to release the captives. It's to set people free. It's to open the eyes of the blind. Now, I don't think that the mission of the church and the mission of Jesus are one and the same. Jesus does things that the church cannot do. Jesus does things that the church does not participate in. We do not participate in, in, in any of his redemptive ministry, in any of his reconciliation work between humanity and, and, and God on a, on, on a sort of on a deep spiritual level. So I don't think that our job is to build the kingdom as much as it is to live as kingdom citizens and to receive a kingdom that's already been established. But even though our central focus is introducing people to Jesus, 
we mirror Jesus in that we do good in his name so that people will know what his Father is like. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid, and you are the salt of the earth. And what good is the salt if it loses its savor? And then he says that you need to be both salt and light so that people will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. So we're engaged in our communities as a church, as a local body, in order that people will look and say, man, not these people are terrible, therefore it's not true, but these people are willing to sacrifice and willing to love and care and visit me when I'm sick and offer care for my kids and put on events like the pumpkin bash for the community. Why do they do that? Maybe because there's something there. And in doing that, our Father in heaven is glorified. Another reason why we need to be engaged in, in things that are not necessarily directly advancing what the mission is, is because we see that Jesus says that we need to just love our neighbors. The mission of the church proper, discipleship making, but individual people, individual Christians, and which make up the corporate body, are called to love other people. Right? Jesus is preaching his message and one of the skeptics in the crowd who wants to justify himself, the text says, when Jesus says that the greatest commandment is what? That you should love God with your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He wants to sort of find a loophole and get out of that and he says, well then, who then is my neighbor? It's kind of like when you're at a summer camp and you give kind of like at a teen camp and you give like the sex talk and then the question is, well, how far is too far, right? The answer to that is the same answer that Jesus gave. Instead of saying where the line is, you should just try and be as pure as you possibly can, and you won't have to worry where the line is. And Jesus' answer is not this is your neighbor with inside of these boundaries. Make sure that you tick off all of the boxes there. But he says just go and be neighborly to everyone, and you won't have to worry about whether or not you're fulfilling the command or not. And Jesus calls us to love our neighbor and then he tells us what loving our neighbor actually looks like. Greater love has no one than this than someone lays down their life for their friend. In 1 John, John is writing to a group of Christians who are in the midst of sort of a, sort of a kind of a doctrinal problem that's drawing some of them away from the faith that circles centers really around the identity of Jesus. But there's also what seems to be some other minor issues there as well. And one of them has to do with whether or not these people in the body are loving one another. And... And, and John says to them, this is how we know what love is, that God sent his son into the world to be uh, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Therefore, if God loved us so much, therefore we ought to love one another and be willing to lay down our lives for each other. That's the highest form of love. And then John says, now, um, how could someone that you know, a brother or a sister, he's talking about within the church here, be in need of just the very most basic things in life, food, shelter, clothing, and you turn away from them. How does the love of God, he says, dwell in you? If Jesus loved people 
to the point of dying for them, to the point of not just dying for those who were his friends, his relatives, those who uh, he found favor with, but he's even willing to do it towards his enemies, then how should we, all, how should we respond to that? And John says, well, we should respond to that by being willing to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters in the church. Now, that is a radical call that only, I think, can be filled in us when the love of God is shone abroad in our hearts because the Spirit of God has placed it in there. It is not something that you can just well up on your own to be willing to give your life for someone who also is in the family of God. But then John says, okay, but if you're not even willing to give and care for somebody who needs the most basic stuff, then how can you even identify as a Christian? Because caring for other people is a marker that you really are a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus says that this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have what for one another? If you have love for one another. And Francis Schaeffer years ago pointed out that Jesus gives the world uh, and a, sort of a, an ability to test, a litmus test, as to whether or not we're really followers of his. And he cashes it out this way. Francis Schaeffer says, someone can come up to, to me or to you and to say, you know, I don't really think that you really are a believer. And we might say, but, uh, but of course I am. I believe all of the right things and I go to church every Sunday and I give money and they'll say, yeah, but I see the way that you treat other professed believers and you don't love them. And based on the word of Jesus, that this is how I'll know that you're one of his disciples is if you love one another. Jesus deeply cares about us loving one another and that love should overflow into those, onto those who aren't even part of our community. We need to love our neighbor as ourself. And so that's another reason why we do good works in his name. Lastly, we do good works, we engage with people in all kinds of different ways, helping them out, meeting their needs, giving of ourselves, serving them with our time and maybe with our money. We do that because we know that it will also open up an opportunity for them to be listening to, the, to hear the gospel. I don't want this to sound like a bait and a switch or just a simply a means to an end, right? We should be doing these things out of love because we recognize that these are people made in the image and likeness of God just like we are. And these are people who Jesus died for. These are people who have real value. And just that alone should motivate us to care for them and to meet them where they're at and want to serve them. But in doing that, we also know that that will be an open up, potentially open up an opportunity for them to be willing to hear the gospel. The fact that Jesus did miracles and healed people caused people to then say, this is the Messiah. This is the one who was promised. In fact, Peter says in, in 2 Peter that, or maybe it's 1 Peter, he says that we were drawn to him by his moral excellence and his virtue. Because of who Jesus was in his character, they were drawn to him because he loved people because he cared for them, because he stayed, the disciples walked with him and they saw that Jesus had compassion, even on people that they would think he should have no compassion on. He should have had no compassion on the woman at the well because it was inappropriate for him and her to be talking. It was inappropriate for both of them to be sitting alone, a man and a woman. It was really inappropriate for them to be alone because 
This is a woman who had had five husbands and was living with another man who wasn't her husband at the time. And the disciples come back from trying to get some food for Jesus, and he, they, it says, and they marveled that he talked with her. When Jesus meets the woman up in Tyre and Sidon, she's a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the relationship between the Israelites and the Canaanites, you know that they were mortal enemies. And she comes to Jesus, and she is begging Jesus to heal her daughter, begging him so much, and Jesus is not responding to her, that the disciples say to him, will you please tell her to be quiet and send her away? But Jesus engages in a conversation with her, and he draws out faith from her, and in doing so, he heals her daughter. A woman who is completely unclean and should never have been in the presence of other people because she had a bleeding issue, squeezes into a crowd and she touches all of the men as she's trying to get close to Jesus because she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I can be made clean. And so Jesus touches, she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and, and she says that she feels like her, her body is, is, is healed and she's cleaned. And Jesus says, it's a great verse, he said, who touched me? And Peter says, Lord, the whole crowd is pushing against you, and you say to me, who touched you? Everyone's touching you. And Jesus says, but I felt power go out from me. And then when the woman realized she couldn't be hid, she came forward trembling. And of course she's trembling, because she has just made every man that she's touched unclean. They have to go through a ritual cleansing process. It is just a disaster all around. She should never have been there. So why is it that Jesus probably knowing who she was and what had happened to her, why does he put her through this anguish of having all of these men stare down at her as she, by the sounding of the text, is down on her knees and, and saying, trembling, in fear, why did he put her through that? Why couldn't he just let her go away with her healing? And I think the reason why is because Jesus wanted to heal her more than just physically. Because the most important words in the story are when he looks at her and he says, daughter, he doesn't say woman, he doesn't say lady, but he identifies her as being his. She is his daughter. And if she's his daughter, and all these people want to have a piece of Jesus and be around Jesus, and he's the big man on campus, they can't ignore her and reject her and still have him. Jesus heals her physically, but he also heals her emotionally because now she's part of the community again. He heals her socially, and then he heals her spiritually, and he says, go in peace because your faith has saved you. Jesus is concerned deeply about drawing people in as his disciples, as the church should be. That's our prime mission. That's the solid core of who we are, making disciples, sharing the good news, inviting people in, but then out of that change in our lives should come an overflow of love and concern and care that characterized who Jesus was to the community around us. And there are lots of opportunities for us to do that. Some of them are on the patio out there. One I'm partial to is called Come to Him. My wife is the director, in case you're wondering why I'm partial to it. All right. Ron Galpin has a ministry. It's called, is it, op is it called Open Door or Hope Store? Hope Again. Neither one of those two. Hope Again, <laughs> right? He's downtown in Los Angeles giving out food and mobile showers and all these wonderful things. 
out of the love of Jesus and being his hands and his feet, as the message is preached, the good behavior and the practices come. And this is why Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, that he has created us a people who are to be zealous for good works. And in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says that we are God's masterpiece. And we have been recreated to walk in good works that he's prepared for us. But before we could ever walk in those, we needed to be born again and become part of his family. And that's the central core driving mission of any local church. But just because it's the main mission doesn't mean that there aren't things that flow out of it. And the things that flow out of it are the love and the compassion and the care, standing up for the poor, helping out those who need it, giving money at times, giving time at times, being a friend, all of which are done in the name of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. What's the mission of our church to the community? Well, it's going to look different for each one of you. It's going to look one way for the church as a whole, but individually you have gifts and you have talents and you have abilities. And you can take those and bless the community around you and in doing so, gain a hearing so that people can hear what they really need to hear most. And that is that they're separated from God they're under the wrath of God, but God in his great love, wherein which he has loved us, sent his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice, to take away that wrath so that we can have a relationship with him and be transformed on the inside and become the very kinds of people that we were created to be. And then to turn around and to do that for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the call that you've given us. And we know that people need the Lord. And they need a relationship with you through your son. Help us at Redemption Hill to continue to make that the main thing that we do. Going, speaking, teaching, inviting people into a relationship and also, Lord, help us to be people who are characterized by the love of Jesus in how we serve other people individually. We pray this in his name. Amen.